Today we are ending the Not Simply Stories series. Uh, We've covered three of Jesus' parables. Two weeks ago we talked about the unmerciful servant. We talked about forgiveness. We talked about the way that we are supposed to live and love others around us. Um, And then last week we talked about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, how we're supposed to be hearers and doers of our faith, not just hearers, but we're supposed to act out. Um, what's interesting is that last week, so I prepare sermons a couple of weeks in advance, and so I had both last week's and this week's message done when we were in Arizona, uh, and when we were coming back, for some reason I felt like I was supposed to switch the order, uh, and I didn't, I didn't really understand why, and I was very nervous because I don't normally do that, and I'd been preparing one sermon the whole week, and then Friday as we were driving, I felt like I was supposed to, to switch it. And then it hit me that today is Father's Day. Like, literally, yesterday I was driving, and I was like, oh my goodness, that's why I was supposed to switch it. Today is Father's Day. And today we're going to look at a parable, and you can already probably guess which one, but it focuses so heavily on a father. Uh, and I just think the Lord is so cool how he, he just, I, I was just so confused. I was like, why, are we, why am I switching things up? And he's like, just be quiet, Landon, for one second. So today we're going to talk about probably the most discussed, yet perhaps most misunderstood parable that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to be in three passages of scripture. John's going to fill them up. Luke chapter 15, Romans chapter 5, and 1 John chapter 3. Again, uh, I'm sure that you've heard teachings on this. I'm sure that you've heard people talk about this, but I want to challenge you to not tune out. Uh, I think today's going to be really powerful, uh, and I think that we're going to look at things from a little bit different of a perspective. I think part of the reason we're confused and we misunderstand this story is because we have a misunderstanding of what the word prodigal means. I will confess that from this stage, I have used the word prodigal, and until researching and studying, I did not realize I had been using it incorrectly. We often think that prodigal means like sinful or lost or rebellious or wayward. We refer to somebody, oh, that's just a prodigal. They they prodigaled. We use it as a verb. They're, They're prodigaling. And, and, it, and that's just how we use the word. When in reality, that's not what the word actually means. Prodigal, by definition, is this. Extremely generous, extra, extravagant, and lavishly wasteful. So with the last one, you can see how the younger son in this story, if, you've know, if you know the story, you can see, okay, he is a prodigal. He's lavishly wasteful. But we forget that the word also means extremely generous, and it means extravagant. And today we're going to look at uh, several different prodigals in this story and what we can learn and what that, how that affects our life. We also need to take the background into account. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15 verse 1 says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Okay, so right now we have the audience. The audience is set. Tax collectors and sinners, one hand. On the other hand, Pharisees and teachers of the law. Pharisees and lawyers. These are drastic opposite groups. You could not possibly get more opposite if you wanted to. See, and and often when we think about tax collectors, we know tax collectors are bad. We don't like tax collectors now, let alone then they hated tax collectors. You know, we, we used to sing that song about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. So cute. But we were taught they didn't like Zacchaeus because he was a tax collector. And so Zacchaeus would go to people, and he was owed $20, and he would take $25. Oh, no. 
that's, that's not a huge deal. And we think, they just didn't like him very much. Tax collectors were hated. See, the Roman Empire at this time ruled from England to India, that far. And the tax collectors were what funded their army. Their army, there are horror stories of what they did. They would go in and they would rape daughters and they would rape wives and they would kill them and they would hang them on posts outside the village so that men would come, they would know they could never beat them. And the tax collectors are who was funding this. So these people weren't just disliked. They were despised, absolutely despised. There is nothing that we can compare that to. We have tax collectors now. We have our good friend, you know, FICA, and we don't like him. But we don't hate him. We don't wish death upon them. Well, some, most people don't wish death upon them and hate him and, oh, hate the government. We don't do that. These people were hated because they were funding the murders and rapes of their family. We have nothing to compare this to. This is one end. And then you have Pharisees and teachers of the law on another end. And these people were so strict with the law that literally they killed Jesus. They killed Jesus because what he taught was so radical. These people would not take more than a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath because they didn't want to walk too much. They didn't want, that's how seriously they took it. Drastic opposite groups. It cannot get more opposite than it did. <laughs> and so, that's why Jesus is so radical in this teaching, in what he's saying. It's so radical and it's so unbelievable that he sits and tells the story that he does because the people there, like one group would have been pointing fingers at, at the other group and the other group doing the exact same thing. It was this radical. Jesus didn't care. If this teaches us anything, this is a, this is a very powerful lesson. Jesus' stories and verses and scriptures... Everything in the Bible is for you. There is something that you can take away. So grasp it. Lean into it. When somebody's teaching, when you're reading through Scripture, lean into it. Don't think about what the other person needs. Think about what you need, how it can bless you. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. This is a lot of reading. So if I mess up my words, I can't help it. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This would be the same extent as him walking up to his dad and saying, Hey, dad, I'd rather you die and me get all of your things. You're basically dead to me. Give me the things that I'm owed. And it says he divides up his property. It's not like he hands him cash. This man had to go sell his stuff and gives it to his son. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, 
Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because of it. Because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered and his father said, he answered his father and said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your order. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. Before I, before I get to the main, the, the, the juicy part of the sermon, I want to focus again just real quick on the audience. You see, in the audience, you have a representation of the two sons. With the sinners, with, with, with the tax collectors, you, they're connecting in this story with the younger son, the one who did wrong, the one who, who was made fun of, the one who, who couldn't, no one liked him, and they're, they're connecting with him. And the Pharisees and the tax collectors, you, here's what I picture. You know, Jesus is telling this story. The younger son goes and spends all of his money, decides he wants to come home. And so he begins the walk home. Jesus says he begins to walk home. And I'm sure the Pharisees at this point are thinking, what is that father about to do to that son? That father's about to just lay it on him like it's, it's over, it's done. Like that has to be what they're thinking. And then... Jesus gets to the main part of the story, and he says the father ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. And these Pharisees, I can't believe that Jesus even made it through the story without them losing their minds. But I want to talk real quick about the idea of self-righteousness. See, because at this point, the Pharisees had to be thinking about the tax collectors. and They had to be thinking about the sinners that were sitting in the room with them. And they thought Jesus was going to say something completely different than he did. I want to talk about self-righteousness. This parable comes in a series of parables, if you, if you read Luke chapter 15, called the loss, okay? There's a shepherd. He has 99 sheep. He loses one, okay? At this point, the Pharisees, still probably not thinking they're lost, even in comparison to the story. So he breaks it down a little bit more. There's a woman. She has 10 coins, and she loses one. And the Pharisees are still thinking, well, I'm one of the nine. I, I, I'm not lost. I'm not lost. He breaks it down even more. He brings it down. There's two sons. Both of them are lost. You're lost. We are lost sometimes. And what I want to, I just want to focus just for a second. We can't make ourselves righteous. You can't make yourself righteous. And when you sit in a sermon or in a teaching or in a Bible study and you're thinking about what somebody else needs to hear and you're not focusing on what you can gain, I'm going to tell you this, it's being self-righteous. When you begin to compare what you have done and what you have not done to what others have done and what they have not done in an effort to try and make yourself seem righteous, you're living in sin. I'm going to tell you this, I confess I have done this. Oh, I'm not as bad as him. I've sat in sermons. Well, I wish that, you know, Billy Joe Bob would hear this, hear this sermon because he is just a... He's just a little fart. You know, like, you just think these things. That's one of those times where that word's coming out and you just wish it wouldn't. You're like, stop, stop.
Stop talking. <laughs> but we sit and do this and we think somebody else needs to hear this message. No, the message is for you. When we hear messages, when we hear things, let's take truths out for us. Let's quit pointing fingers. You can't make yourself righteous no matter what you've done. No matter what you haven't done, you can't make yourself righteous. There's one way to be righteous, and that's the blood of Jesus. And, and the older brother in this story is so mad. He says, I've been slaving. I've been slaving my whole life to earn something from you, Father. And, and the brother, he didn't do anything. That's because they're being self-righteous, trying to earn something. No. The Father says, everything that I have is yours. Why? Because of sonship. Because you're a son, because you're a daughter, you have everything already. You already have righteousness. You already have it. Just take it. Okay, so I just want to, I just want to, that's just a little short preach. It has nothing to do with what we're about to talk about. But when we sit in here, when we sit in rooms like this, when we sit in Bible studies, let's just remember, this is for me. I can't make myself righteous. I just need to sit and soak with Jesus. What am I supposed to learn from this? Not think about what others need to learn, what others need to hear. What do I need to hear from this message? The Bible says that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Knowing the truth is what sets you free. But you have to know the truth for you to set you free. If I know the truth for me, I can set myself free. Okay? Well, Jesus can set, set me free. But I have to know the truth for me. If I know the truth, but I'm only thinking about it in terms of what other people need, I'm not free. I have to know the truth for me to set me free. All right. There we go. That was a little short preach. Point number one, let's talk about the prodigal sons. Sons, there's two of them. In this story, we find two sons who sin. The first is this younger son who begs his father, split up the estate, I'd rather you be dead, give me all of my things. He leaves, squanders it all, and he begins to come home. As he's walking home, he begins to prepare a speech. How many of you have been caught in sin, and you've started preparing a speech? Huh? <laughs> High school days, flashback, you know what I mean? Mom, I didn't know, I didn't know there was going to be alcohol there. I thought we were watching trolls. I don't know. I... I thought we were playing Uno. I didn't know we, that was going to be that. You start preparing this little speech. You're running through. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. But it says, while he was still a long ways off, his father runs to him, kisses him, and blesses him. Here's something interesting. In this story, we're more disturbed by this young man's lifestyle than by the fact that he's lost. I think that's true of our lives today. I think more often, especially in the church, we get more concerned by the ways people are living in sin, what people are doing wrong, rather than the fact that they just haven't experienced the love of God. We can't focus so much on the lifestyle. We have to focus more on the relationship that they're lacking with the most high dad, the one that's running after him, chasing after him. We can't focus so much on the lifestyle. We all, we all know the distant countries we've run to. We know the things we've engaged in we shouldn't have. We know the mistakes that we've made, the hurts that we've caused, the places we went to go hide we thought Father wouldn't see it. But here's the reality. When we turn around, we can realize that the Father is chasing after us. He's running after us. He's longing to give us new things. Romans 5.8. You probably know this one. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this young man, 
had been laying with pigs and eating... Okay, for a Jewish boy to be feeding and sleeping by pigs, this is literally the worst of the worst. It could not possibly get worse for him in his life. He begins to walk back. He hasn't stopped and changed. He's wearing the same clothes. He's barefoot. He probably smells absolutely horrible. But the father, even though he reeked, ran to him. Guess what? We reek sometimes. We reek of rebellion, of sin, of hurt, and we've got to realize that doesn't stop the father from running after us. He's still there. He's still running after us. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, holiness is what God wants for you, not what God wants from you. I'm going to specify that, okay? It's what he wants for you, not from you, because we can come to Christ in our mess. We can come to him in our hurt, in our distant countries. He doesn't turn us away. He actually provides the righteousness and provides the holiness with his grace. It's the only way. He doesn't expect us to come to him already holy, already changed, already ready. He says, come to me, and we'll work on that change together. You can't make yourself holy by changing your behavior. You can't make yourself holy by changing your thoughts. God is the only one that can make you holy, and he does it by making you innocent. Every time that we come to the foot of the cross and we say, God, I've sinned, I've sinned, help me, save me. He says, you're made innocent. Innocence is holy. He says, you're made innocent. It's the only way that we can be made holy. You can't make yourself holy. When you fall at the foot of the cross, your innocence is restored. Your righteousness is restored and your holiness is restored. And then with the Holy Spirit, you can begin to see change in your life. We don't have to change in order to be accepted by God. We're accepted by God, and then with Him, we can begin to change, okay? That's the younger son. Let's get the older brother. This is part of the problem with the older brother. His identity is completely based in what he did and didn't do, his works. He didn't realize he was the son. He even, in the verse, said, I've been slaving. He compares himself to a slave. He's trying to do all the right things without realizing that from the beginning, everything the father offered was his because he was a son. If we're friends on Facebook, uh, you saw that uh, about a month and a half ago, month ago, what day is it? month ago, I wrote a song called Crumbs and Feast. Okay, and this, I was in that prayer room and was just being wrecked thinking about this story and thinking about how often we settle for crumbs. The Bible says that God has prepared a feast for you. It actually says he prepared a feast in the presence of your enemies, which is just a that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. It's powerful. But, but he prepares a feast for you. Guess what's in that feast? Acceptance, love, forgiveness, peace, joy. Every good thing that the Father has to offer you, he's already offered. It's a feast. And how often do we just accept crumbs that have fallen from the table? God, I'll, I'll, I'll settle for having a lot of anxiety if I could just have a little bit of peace. Just a little bit of peace. God, I'm, I'm hurt, so just give me a little, just a little bit of healing. God, I'm just so sad, just give me a little bit of joy. And he's just saying, just like the father says to his son, it's all yours. It's all yours. You don't have to settle. Don't eat crumbs. 
eat from the feast that I've prepared. We can't earn our righteousness. Jesus gave it to us. Eat it. <laughs> Take it. You can't, earn, you can't do enough things to earn peace and love and joy. It's already yours. Just take it. We don't have to walk in anxiety and hurt. It's already ours. The peace is already ours. We don't have to eat crumbs. We can eat a feast. Point number two, the prodigal father. I believe the real prodigal in this story actually is the father. Let's go back to the definition. Extremely generous, lavishly wasteful, and extravagant. Think about the love and the grace and the party that this father threw for this son. Extremely generous? Absolutely, that's generous. Extravagant? Absolutely, that's extravagant. To a point of lavish wastefulness? Yes, it is. He, he, and not in, not in a negative way, but he lavishly threw love and grace and forgiveness and freedom when he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. The father is the prodigal in this story. He's so generous, almost to a point of recklessness. He's, he, he's recklessly loving and forgiving and offering grace. <laughs> and the father gives three things in this story, and these are important. He gives a robe, he gives sandals, and he gives a ring. By these things, the father is restoring this son in certain areas. Okay, so he gives a robe. In this time, robes were given to sons. They were actually given to favorite sons. And so he says, bring out the best robe. Bring out the best robe and give it to him. He's restoring his identity. You're not a slave, you're a son. He gives him sandals. Slaves went barefoot. Slaves went barefoot. Family does not go barefoot. You should not go barefoot. He's restoring his dignity by giving him sandals. He's restoring his dignity. He restores his identity, his dignity. And then he brings out a ring. See, these rings were dipped in oil and wax, and you could seal documents with it. You could seal uh, envelopes and sign important documents just with this ring. He's restoring his authority, his identity, his dignity, and his authority. The son restores. And this is what our father wants to do to us. Restore our identity, restore our dignity, and restore our authority. 1 John 3.1. And you've probably heard this one too. How great is the love of the Father that He's lavished upon us. And we should be called children of God. We are children of God. And this is a story that shows what that means for us. The Father wants these things for you. He wants to restore you in areas you, don't even, you may not even know that you need to be restored. And on this Father's Day, when we sit and we honor our fathers, our, our fathers who sometimes are flawed, sometimes do things wrong, but guess what? God put them there to be a representation of Him. Of Him and His love. Fathers, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for the ways that you point us to Jesus. We're so thankful for that. And if you didn't have a good father, if your father has passed, hear this. Today we still get to celebrate because we have the ultimate father. We have the ultimate father. And he is lavishly throwing his love on you. He is extravagantly throwing his grace and his mercy on you. 
We just get to take it and eat it. <laughs> All right, final point, and this is where, this is where we're changing things up. Prodigal life. There are powerful things that we can take from the story that we can make into our life and put into play in our life. And I think, that, I think it's important. I think this story's not, he's not just telling a story. He's not simply telling a story. It's not simply a story. You see why we called it not simply stories? Not simply a story. This is a challenge. He's challenging us in the way that we live, in the way that we live today, in the way that we're going to live tomorrow. We must live a prodigal life, a generous and extravagant and a sometimes lavishly wasteful life. Not wasteful in terms of anti-Bible, not like, well, I have $40. I'm going to go buy a $50,000 boat. No, lavishly wasteful in our grace and in our love, just like the Father did. He's saying, imitate me, follow me. Let's lavishly pour out fruit on others, fruit of love and joy and peace. This is what he's saying, lavishly throw things at people, lavishly throw grace, lavishly throw love. See, the son shows up, and he's not changed, and he's broken, and he's hurt. He looks terrible, smells terrible, and the father forgives him. Let me tell you this. We cannot hold back love and forgiveness while waiting for somebody else to change. Okay? Again, I have done this in my life. Well, I'll, I'll forgive them. I'll be nice to them once they show me they've changed. No. <laughs> Why? Because did the father do that to us? If so, he still wouldn't forgive me. There's times where I still sin, I still hurt. He doesn't say, you need to go change and smell better before you get back here. He says, right now, I forgive you. Right now. And in our lives, we have to imitate this. We're little Christs, imitators of Christ. So when someone comes to us, they haven't changed. They still reek of sin. I know it's hard, but we love them and forgive them. And bless them. And you know, I think this is, <laughs> this is even easier when it's like distant people. What about when your family has really hurt you? Your friends have really hurt you and you're just like, I just, I just need to see change. Well, you know what? We can pray that change happens, but it can't stop you from loving and forgiving them. Yes, they need to be in line with Scripture. We pray that that happens. But that, we can't wait on them to change before we love and Forgive them. <laughs> this story ends, and we actually don't know what happens. Okay? It just ends. Jesus just stops telling it. I just picture him dropping the mic, and he's like, gone. And everyone's just sitting there like, jaws, just like, what? What? What did you say? He does that on purpose to get us to think. We don't know that the son actually changed. What if the son the next day woke up and said, Father, give me half of the estate. He could have. But we don't see what happens. He also could have lived in sonship the rest of his life. We don't know. And what Jesus is saying here is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If people are still living in sin, we pray for them and we bless them and we forgive them. We can't hold that back. We still have to love them. Our forgiveness and love can't be contingent on change. <laughs> Here's another thing. What are we filled with when someone is a long ways off? 
when someone is sinning and someone is in that far other country, and we're, I guarantee you right now you're thinking of like three or four people like, oh, they are, they are far off. What are we thinking? Do you feel anger? Do you feel hurt? Do you feel jealousy? Do you feel hate? Because the father felt compassion, and that compassion stirred him to chase after that person. What do we feel for the lost? What about the lost people right here in Quanah, Texas? What do we feel for them? The people that are sinning, the people that don't know Jesus, what do we feel for them? Do we hate them? Do we talk about them? Do we curse them? Or are we so moved with compassion that we chase after them? And not like beating them with the Bible, but chase after them and just, just love them. What do we do? If we're to look like Christ, then our compassion has to motivate us to chase after the lost and chase after the broken. I want to reread something real fast. Just We're about to close. Some of y'all are looking at your watch like, Landon, <laughs> we're getting there. I want to reread something real fast. While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then the father, I mean, then the son said, Father. I want you to notice the order of events. The son is walking this way. Father runs and greets him, kisses him. Then the son begins his speech. The kiss came before the confession. The kiss came before the confession. This is a really powerful image that we need to get in our minds. The way that we treat people, the way that we encounter people, guess what? Has an effect on their response. He kissed him and blessed him before he had confessed. He kissed him and blessed him before he had apologized. He accepted him and loved him before he had apologize. The kiss comes before the confession. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are sinners in this room, there are sinners in this town, and Christ died for them. He died for us. And His kiss came before our confession. This is the way that we are to live as well. We are to love and forgive and bless others. Here's a sad reality. A lot of people don't go to church. A lot of people don't go to a church home because they fear judgment from God, but they really fear judgment from people, from the church, from Christians. And this is sad. This is sad. We should, we should not be having this issue if we're judging others, we're comparing our righteousness to theirs, we're being self-righteous and we're living in sin. We're being an older brother. And Jesus is saying, don't be an older brother. Don't be a younger son. Be the father in this story. Be the one that runs around lavishly offering grace and love, even when people don't deserve it, because people need to be welcomed here. It's part of our job. Um, closing point. I just want to say this. I want to close with this. In each of these parables, again, there's three parables in this chapter called the Losts, okay? The parable of the lost sheep. I'm going to read a, a verse from each one of these parables, and I want you to think about, think about something. What's the first thing they do, okay? Parable of the lost sheep. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors and says, 
rejoice. The parable of the lost coin. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. The parable of the lost son, we know he throws a party. What's the first thing they do when they find it? It's not rejoice. It's that they stop looking for it. Then they rejoice. We stop looking for things that we find in every situation except our faith. When I, let, me, let me say this. When I lose my keys, which, by the way, happens often. When that happens and I find my keys, I don't keep looking for them. Hello? I have them. When I lose my wallet, I don't keep looking for it. I have it. There's this saying, people say, it'll be, you know, it'll be in the last place that I look. Duh! <laughs> of course it will be. Why would you find it and then keep looking? Of course it'll be in the last place that you look. Stop looking. And in our lives, we're born, we're made to find love and acceptance. But guess what? We've found it. We can stop looking. The first thing we do when we find it, we have to stop looking. We search for love and peace in so many different things. So many different things. And Jesus is sitting here saying, it's here. You can stop looking. You can stop looking and rejoice. We can rejoice. We need to rejoice. But the first thing we need to do is stop looking. You found it. Don't eat crumbs. Don't eat crumbs off the floor of the feast that the Father has prepared. We can rejoice because we found what we're looking for. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for you. And we're so, so thankful for the way that you love us. God, I thank you that when I stink, you still run after me. God, I thank you that when, when I mess up, you still run after me. And Lord, we are just so thankful for the love that you display. Through our earthly fathers, we're thankful for the love that you display to us through them. And Lord, I pray over the fathers today. I just pray a special blessing over them. God, that today they would feel more loved and more valued than they have in a long time. I just pray that over them. And Lord, I pray over us that we would have a new realization of your love today. A new realization of the Father's heart and love for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.